Albany Public Library in Albany, New York. This is the Albany Made Podcast. Spirit of Halloween season, we present you two historic tales of murder and betrayal in the Capital Region. First, we are joined by Sean O'Reilly, Education Coordinator at Albany's historic Cherry Hill, who tells the story of one of Albany's most infamous murders, the Strang Whipple case of 1827. Afterwards, Zan and the Winter Folk perform their original song, If I Had Known, about the veiled murderess Henrietta Robinson who in 1853 murdered Timothy Lanigan and Catherine Ruby by poison in Troy, New York. The murder occurred in 1827, but the story really starts at least 10 years before that with Elsie Lansing. She's the daughter of Abraham Lansing and Christina Voorhees. She's the granddaughter of Abraham Lansing, a prominent sloop captain in the city of Albany. And her family history is important here because this is how she's connected to the Van Rensselaers of Cherry Hill. The Lansings and the Van Rensselaers are connected through marriage, and then they are also connected through the Hudson River sloop trade. So Abraham Lansing was a partner of Philip P. Van Rensselaer. Philip P. was the second generation owner of Cherry Hill. His father, Philip, and his mother, Mariah Van Rensselaer, had Cherry Hill built in 1787. At the time of the murder, Philip P. is the person who is running the Cherry Hill farm. When Elsie is a young girl, her father actually dies, and she is under the care of Philip P. and Catherine. By the time she was an adolescent, she had gone to the school in Rensselaer that is now known as Emma Willard, and she would go to boarding school. She would come home and visit on vacations, and one of these vacations, she was home visiting, and she kept leaving after supper and staying out until 10 o'clock prayers. So she was gone for a good portion of the day as a 14-year-old. And allegedly, she was over at the neighbor's house spending time with John Whipple. John Whipple was 24. And short time after that vacation, she went back to school. And when her grandfather went to pick her up for another vacation, she was gone and had eloped with John Whipple. The two were married without the Lansing family knowing. Elsie's mother had died just a few months previous which meant that she was very rich. And one of the reasons, besides the fact that the family was angry that she had eloped, they were very angry with the Whipple family because now John Whipple was in possession of Elsie's inheritance that she had inherited from her father and her mother. So this marriage is made. John Whipple actually has to sue for Elsie's inheritance in court because the Van Rensselaers um, and the Lansings contest it, but he wins. Eventually, Philip P. and Catherine Van Rensselaer come to like John Whipple, and they trust him. And they feel that while Elsie is undisciplined and a hysteric like her mother, John is very level-headed, and he takes her fortune, and he invests it, and he makes it grow. So all of this has happened 10 years before the murder. 
in 1826. Elsie is 24. She has a five-year-old son, and her husband, John, is a contractor on the D&H Canal. The canals have exploded at this time. The Erie Canal was built in 1825. This is big business while the sloop trade is declining, and the Cherry Hill Van Rensselaer wealth is declining. John is becoming more wealthy, and Elsie and John are boarders at Cherry Hill. There's speculation that perhaps Elsie had proven herself to be so untrustworthy, John didn't want to leave her alone. There were 22 people living at Cherry Hill at the time of the murder, so there were presumably a lot of people to kind of watch over Elsie, but they weren't watching closely enough. So Elsie is at Cherry Hill, as is her five-year-old son, Abraham, And now we have another character that we can introduce, and that's Jesse Strang. Jesse Strang was the oldest of 14 children. He was originally from Westchester County, but also lived in Dutchess and Putnam counties. And in 1825, he deserted his wife and four children and went to Sandusky, Ohio. Some time after that, he heads back east and somewhere around western New York, he stages his own death. He throws a bundle of clothes on the lakeside and makes it appear as if there was a struggle and walks away, and then they dredge the lake and they conclude that Jesse Strang drowned in the lake. And he changes his name to Joseph Orton, and he comes to this area, comes to the capital region. He has family, he says, in Stillwater, and it seems like maybe he thinks that there's some money that he can get in Stillwater from his family. He's staying in Schenectady, and his luggage is instead accidentally sent to New York City. It's first sent to Albany, and then he travels to Albany quickly to try and catch it, but there was a mistake, and his luggage is sent to New York. So he's stuck in the area for a while. He finds his way to Greenbush, which is now Rensselaer, and he runs into a tavern owner whose name is Otis Bates. He owns a tavern that's just south of the Cherry Hill Farm. It's actually on Van Rensselaer property, so he's a tenant of the Van Rensselaers. And he gets a job in Bates's tavern. According to Jesse, he was at Bates's tavern, and he sees two women One is young Mariah Van Rensselaer, who is a teenager living at Cherry Hill, and another woman is Elsie Whipple. And she catches his eye because she's basically flirting with the tavern owner. She's um, pushing him about the room the way that Jesse says it, and she's sprightly and giddy. And so he asks about her, and the tavern owner's son says that she's a married woman, And then when Jesse says in his words he would like to sleep with her, the tavern owner's son says, how do you know you can't unless you've tried because I have? Later on, the son claims that he never said that part, but that's what Jesse testified that he said or confessed. And this obviously catches Jesse's attention. So much so that he gets a job at Cherry Hill so that he can be closer to this sprightly married woman. He is working in a barn. I believe he's still working at Bates Tavern, and he's threshing in the barn. And Elsie and Mariah Van Rensselaer visit him in the barn and watch him for a while. And this, again, gives him some confidence and makes him curious, so he decides to get a job at Cherry Hill. As soon as he arrives at Cherry Hill in the late summer of 
1826, Elsie and her husband John, who were boarding here, leave to go to Kingston so that he can do some work on the canal. So while she's gone, Jesse Strang, or Joseph Orton as he's known, becomes acquainted with the Cherry Hill family. He quickly becomes trusted. Despite the fact that he's a farmhand, he can read and write, which is unusual at that time. He also wears glasses, which was also unusual, so they gave him the nickname Doctor. By the time Elsie and John come back, Jesse has become trusted in the household, and he and Elsie have another interaction when he and other Van Rensselaer family members are out in the orchard picking nuts. And Elsie's accompanying them, as is Philippi and Catherine and Mariah Van Rensselaer. And so they're picking nuts, they come back in, and Elsie is familiar with him. So she has a conversation with him about other women who were with them, which Jesse writes is an unusual thing to do for an upper-class person to have this kind of familiar conversation about her peers with a farmhand. And this gives him an opening, he believes. But he doesn't act on it. And the next thing he says is that a few days later, Elsie accosts him in the kitchen. The kitchen in the house is this large room, and there are two bedrooms off of it. In one of the bedrooms, Jesse sleeps with another farmhand named George Wilson. And in the other bedroom off the kitchen, an enslaved woman named Dinah Jackson, who's about 50 years old. She's the family cook. By 1827, she's the last person who's enslaved at Cherry Hill. Servants would all be eating in the kitchen. The family would come and go very often. So it's uh, one of those places that is set up for this interaction between Jesse and Elsie and a lot of meetings thereafter. According to Jesse, Elsie accosts him in the kitchen and tells him she wants him to write her a letter. And at first he thinks that she is illiterate, and so he thinks she's just asking him to write for her. But it becomes clear that she wants him to write her a letter because she says, I I never want to write the first one, which kind of would imply that she's had this kind of thing going before. But again, this is all Jesse's words. She tells him she wants him to think about it, think about it and write me a letter. So he thinks about it. He writes her a letter. And he basically says that if this is a trap and you're going to show your husband, then I'm not interested but if this is not a trap, let me know. And Elsie writes back immediately and says, this is not a trap. Since I first saw you, I love you, and I'll be faithful to you forever. Sometimes they just pass the notes in the kitchen. Sometimes they leave them in places like under a pillow. Sometimes they actually give them to family members. So Philippi and Catherine have four children living in the house. The oldest one is 22 years old. His name, of course, is Abraham. And there are two teenagers, and then there's a young girl. And so they are passing notes back and forth using the young girl, using the teenager. John Whipple's niece, Henrietta Patrick, who is a seamstress, works in Albany. She's actually sharing a bedroom with them. And she comes and goes from Albany every day, but she finds at least one of the letters underneath Elsie's pillow. Apparently, they burn every letter after they receive it, but afterwards, there are family members who testify that they did see these letters being exchanged. From the start, Jesse claims that they're passing letters back and forth, and he just wants to run away. Let's just leave. Let's go to Montreal. We'll wait until John loses interest, and then we'll go to Sandusky, Ohio, and we'll start a new life together. 
Elsie says that she can't bear to leave her fortune behind. She says that in order for them to leave, they would need at least $1,200, which is about, well, in the 1980s, it was $15,000. So $1,200 back then would be, you know, probably tens of thousands of dollars now. Jesse made 33 cents a day. So obviously to him, any amount of money like this would be a lot. According to him, Elsie won't leave without getting at least that much. But of course, none of her wealth belongs to her. It all belongs to John. So she could leave, she could get divorced even, but she's not getting any of her money unless John dies. So she proposes that to Jesse Strang. And according to him, it's a terrifying prospect. He does not want to do it, and he tells her over and over again. According to him, in at least one letter, Elsie claims that there is someone else who would be willing to do it for her. So perhaps Elsie has tried the scheme with someone else. She wants Jesse to try and, what she says, waylay John to go down into Kingston, where John is working, and have him shoot John. Jesse says, well, maybe I could go to Montreal and hire someone and have him do it, but I don't feel that I could take someone's life. And the conversation stalls for a long time until Elsie claims that John hit her. And while Jesse confesses that he doesn't believe that John has done that, he's only seen John be kind and patient with Elsie and most of the rest of the family also feels that way, or at least felt that way. They testified that John was patient even when he shouldn't have been, and kind even when Elsie didn't deserve kindness. Hearing that Elsie may have been struck seems to have prompted Jesse to agree to some kind of plot to murder John Whipple. He's not comfortable with shooting him, though. So Elsie suggests poisoning. Jesse tries several times to get arsenic in Albany, and to bring it back so that Elsie can poison John. Each plot fails miserably. The first time he actually goes to Dinah Jackson, the cook, and asks her how much she would be willing to take in order to poison John Whipple when she's making his food. Dinah says she wouldn't do it for the state or the whole world. And if she were to do something like that, she wouldn't be able to live with herself. Jesse pretends then that he was joking, laughs, and gets up and walks away. And Dinah doesn't tell anyone. Remember, she's an enslaved person. She doesn't have a lot of freedoms, and she probably didn't feel safe to go and tell someone something about someone who was so trusted by the family. The next thing he does is he gets some arsenic, and each time he does this, he gets a little envelope of it, and he gives just a small portion of it to Elsie, and then he hides the rest. And for some reason, every time he hides the rest, he loses it, or one time he hid it in a piece of furniture in the barn, and then that piece of furniture was sold to someone else. So then he had to try and track down the furniture, and when he did finally track down the furniture and look inside, the arsenic must have fallen out somewhere. Another time he hides it in the barn and then tries to move it in another place. So even in this task that he's doing, he just seems to struggle a lot. On Elsie's side, she's also struggling because she gives John some arsenic in his tea, and doesn't give him enough. Nothing happens. So then she wonders if there's something wrong with it. So again, Jesse goes and gets more arsenic. She puts more in some kind of medicinal drink. John's become suspicious, so he wants her and their son, five-year-old Abraham, to drink it first. She spills hers 
but allows her five-year-old son to drink something she knows has arsenic in it. John drinks it as well. Afterwards, she runs to Jesse, and they do something that they think will mediate it, and they give him something to drink or eat, I think. And everyone's okay, much to Elsie's dismay. In the meantime, Elsie and Jesse are taking the relationship further than just note-passing. So one night, Elsie is supposed to go down and visit Jesse in his quarters. I guess his roommate, George Wilson, must have been away, but she doesn't visit him. So the next morning, he comes upstairs, and he wants to know why. And she explains that one of the women in the household locked the little passageway to his door. And they, at that time, go into the bedroom that was being used by young Mariah Van Rensselaer, and according to Jesse, they consummated their relationship there. Something to keep in mind during all of this note passing and consummating their relationship in one of the bedrooms in the house is that there are 20 other people living in this house, and people are sharing bedrooms. There are main staircases throughout the house, but there are also servant staircases hidden in the house. Lots of the bedrooms have more than one door so that a servant can come and go, tend to the fire, empty a chamber pot. And these staircases and these doors are designed for servants to be slipping from place to place without being noticed so that they're not disturbing the Van Rensselaer household or their guests. So as Jesse and Elsie are meeting up and having hushed conversations and passing notes and having their tryst, it seems ridiculous to think that no one in the house would have noticed something suspicious going on, or at least them spending a lot of time together alone. They also go away on a tryst. They figure out how to slip away from Cherry Hill on the same day, and they meet in town Jesse rents a wagon. They couldn't get a carriage, so they're in an open wagon, and they're going to ride out and stay overnight in a boarding house. Unfortunately, the weather is terrible. It's cold and rainy, and they are in an open wagon. They don't get very far. They end up where the Tailored Tea is actually now. It's a tea house in Colony near the Albany Airport, and they make it as far as that boarding house. They go in, and Elsie has a ridiculous story, uh, at least according to Jesse, it's ridiculous about how they're out there because they were on a trip, but they were held up because they had a sick child, so then they left late, and that's why they need to stop at the hour that they are at this boarding house. Jesse, I think, had a conflicting story that he had already started to tell some of the other people. Their clothing is not appropriate to be a married couple. She's wearing upper-class clothing. He's wearing clothing that would farmhand would have been wearing. And so everyone in the boarding house that is interviewed afterwards is suspicious about these two and what they're up to. After their tryst at the boarding house, they come back, and Jesse decides, okay, I'm going to go into town, and I'm going to buy a gun. So he goes into town, he buys a rifle, and Elsie and he both start passing around the story to anyone who will listen that they've been seeing prowlers outside of the house. Jesse tells Dinah Jackson and the other farmhands. Elsie tells the Van Rensselaers. She tells John Whipple. Jesse tells John Whipple so that everyone is wondering who these prowlers might be. And Jesse and Elsie also have a story that they've concocted. They must be men working on the DNH canal 
and they're disgruntled with John Whipple. And there's some comments, I believe, about them being Irish, and you know how those Irish canal men must be, in Jesse's words, which gives you kind of an idea about what's going on in this area at this time. In 1825, the Erie Canal is built, the D&H Canal is being built to bring coal from Pennsylvania to the Hudson Valley. Because the Erie Canal is this passageway to the west, you have a huge influx of people coming into Albany and families that are wanting passage to the west and goods that are coming back and forth. So Albany is just full of people and there's suspicion perhaps of these people and we have new immigrants coming in at this time. So there's an opportunity here for Jesse and Elsie to come up with some kind of story that they could work in as part of an alibi. Dinah Jackson testifies that she thought that Jesse was trying to scare her away she thought that this was something that he was using against her, perhaps because he had tried to get her to poison John. But she says that this is her home and her proper place, and she should not go. And no one really seems to take their warnings to heart, perhaps because Elsie is considered an untrustworthy person. But John does start carrying around a gun, and Elsie actually takes the ball from his gun and gives it to Jesse to use in the rifle that he bought on John Whipple. And there's a part where Jesse writes in his confession that Elsie brings him the ball and says what a wicked person she is for taking this from John, and it's going to be used to kill him. So Jesse buys this gun. Uh, It ends up being a pretty distinct gun. It actually kicks to the side a little bit. He's concerned about shooting it through glass, so Elsie actually gets him some window panes for him to practice shooting through. She also is the person who gave him the money to go buy the rifle, which ends up being traced. And after Jesse has practiced and he feels confident, or maybe not confident, but he's willing to do it, their opportunity arises on May 7th of 1827. John is in town, and they know actually where he's going to be because Over the course of all this that's happened, you know, they meet in the summer of 1826. May 1827 is when the murder takes place. Philip P. Van Rensselaer died in the winter of 1827. He was in his 40s. It was a very sudden death. There was actually some suspicion afterwards that perhaps Jesse had poisoned him, but it doesn't appear to be the case He probably had a heart attack or he died of natural causes anyway. But this throws the house into some turmoil because Philip P. had never really been as successful as a merchant and as a sloop owner as his father. Part of that might have been because the sloop trade was in decline because the canal system and steamboats technology had changed and the Van Rensselaer family at Cherry Hill never really modernized. Part of it might have been Philip P. just wasn't as business savvy. But for whatever reason, they were on the verge of bankruptcy when he died. And at his death, his son, Abraham inherits this large farm. He has a large household to manage, and he is probably at a bit of a loss. So John Whipple actually, on the night of his murder, had Abraham Van Rensselaer in his bedroom, and they were sitting down and looking over some of the farm's books. He was helping him try and manage this farm that he had just inherited a few months earlier. I'll tell you a little bit about where people were the night of the murder because this factors into what happens. Old Mariah Van Rensselaer, so Philip Van Rensselaer's widow, who's near 80 at this time, she's in the north side of the house. The south side of the house is where 
Catherine and Philip P. Van Rensler's lived and where their children lived. When Philip P. died, Catherine refused to go in her bedroom that she had shared with him, so she actually had moved downstairs into the dining room. There are grown Van Rensselaer children, Philip P.'s siblings, and then there are also his children living in the house, and they're kind of like in every nook and cranny. And then there's also servants and Dinah Jackson. So there are people living in the attic. There are people sleeping on both floors. And so this is something that Jesse needs to take into account when he's going to shoot somebody through a window at a house. Where are all the other people in the house going to be? So he and Elsie come up with these plans. One of the plans is that Elsie will open the curtain of the bedroom if John is actually in there. And if he's not in there, she will leave a sock on a stick outside the stoop on the south side of the house, so outside the kitchen stoop. Another thing that she does is she finds another pair of socks at Jesse's request, a pair of wool socks that he can put on so that he can be climbing on a roof without anyone hearing him. Jesse has the gun stowed away with the socks in the barn, and he comes up with a story that he tells Abraham Van Rensselaer. He says, uh, there's a horse that's sick. I'll go into town and I'll buy some medicine for the horse. He also tells everyone he's going to buy a pair of pantaloons. So he's given some money to do that. He's also given some money from Elsie. And he goes into town and he buys the medicine for the horse. He goes to the store for some pantaloons. And he says he basically is wasting the time of the clerk and making it apparent that he has been there so that he has an alibi afterwards. And then once it is dark, he runs back to Cherry Hill. It's estimated that it was about a mile from the actual proper city of Albany and Cherry Hill at this time. Now Cherry Hill's within the city boundaries, but back then Cherry Hill was one of the first farms south of the actual city. So under the cover of darkness, he runs back to Cherry Hill and he starts to walk around the house and kind of take stock of everyone who's here. So the first thing he does is he goes to the kitchen on the south side of the house and he peeks in and John Whipple's niece, Henrietta Patrick, is in there as is the teenager, Mariah Van Rensselaer. One of them is making candy on the stove. The other one is seated at the table. Dinah Jackson has just sat down to eat. It's probably about nine o'clock at night. She has lit a pipe for Elsie, who is sitting by the window smoking her pipe. So he sees where most of the women in the house are. He goes around the south side of the house to the kitchen stoop, sees that there's no sock on the stick. So he proceeds to go to the backyard. He looks in the back window and sees Catherine Van Rensselaer, the widow, who is sewing in the dining room, which she has made her bedroom. And he feels like he's accounted for most of the Van Rensselaers anyway. He knows that the curtain is open, so John must be in his bedroom. He runs to the barn, he gets the rifle, he changes out of his shoes and puts on the socks. He fetches a box, puts it against the potting shed wall. He hoists himself up onto the roof, and he's able to walk right up to the window in Elsie and John Whipple's bedroom. And he peers in, he sees John Whipple and Abraham sitting in the room. He aims, he fires, and he strikes John Whipple right under his shoulder blade. The gun backfires, and he slips and falls off the roof, and when he stands up and dusts himself off, he says, ironically, thank God I'm not hurt. 
and runs to the back of the property, grabs his shoes and his socks. He runs into the woods. Right now, there's streets and houses right next to Cherry Hill, but back then there were ravines, there was a stream. So he goes tearing through the woods. He tries to bury the socks and the rifle in a stream bed. He goes running up as close as he can to Albany, and then he kind of just jumps through the woods and into the street, and there's a crowd already running towards Cherry Hill. And he joins that crowd. So now if we go back and we look at it from the perspective of the people inside Cherry Hill, just before Jesse fires through the window, Abraham looked up and saw his face. And John Whipple, at the moment he is shot, shouts out, Oh, Lord. And he goes staggering into the hallway. Abraham Van Rensler also runs out into the hallway. John collapses at the top of the stairs and dies on the spot. Abraham goes running downstairs to get a gun to run outside and see who it was. But the family stops him. They're afraid. They don't want him to get hurt. At the time when they hear the gunshot in the kitchen, they also immediately hear Catherine Van Rensler scream. Pandemonium breaks out in the kitchen. The young women rush into Dinah Jackson's bedroom and lock themselves inside. Dinah Jackson pulls herself free and goes and opens the door and tells the family dog to go see whoever the intruder is. But the dog did not stir, she says. And that to her was immediately suspicious because the dog always barked at strangers. So why the dog wouldn't have gone after whoever was outside or barked when they saw him, that caught her attention. They send... Killian Van Rensselaer into town to fetch the family doctor. And in doing so, he also stops at the Columbia Hotel and lets people know that. And so people just start heading towards Cherry Hill. They want to know what's going on. Dinah Jackson is standing at the front door and she sees this crowd come up and they're trying to get in the gate. And then she sees Jesse Strang and she says, doctor, come in. Mr. Whipple's been shot. So Jesse Strang leaves the crowd, comes into the house They call a coroner's inquest. They have the sheriff, they have the coroner, they have Dr. Wing, who's the family physician, and they all set up around John Whipple's corpse. They undress it, they inspect the wound, they extract the bullet, and they pass around the bullet. All of the able-bodied men in the house are expected to participate in this inquest. So Jesse Strang, of course, is invited to be a part of the inquest, and he recoils from the bullet. He paces. They testified later that he was so quick to blame prowlers or someone else. Jesse had pointed to the window and said, wouldn't that be a fine place for someone to shoot through? So Jesse had been so quick to set up his alibi, he had really just incriminated himself. And within a couple of days, he was arrested. Elsie proceeds to swoon and faint. It is generally hysterical. She is asked by one of the questioners to kiss John Whipple's corpse. A beer kiss was folklore believed to be a test for a murder suspect. If a murder suspect kissed their victim, then the wound would bleed. So Elsie kisses John's corpse and the wound does not bleed, but she's not exonerated by that. Soon all of the stories about her behavior and the intrigue that she and Jesse have created result in her being arrested as well. Jesse caves under pressure and feels that if he can perhaps implicate Elsie, then that might lessen his sentence. So he does, 
And Elsie refuses that she had anything to do with the murder, but she does admit to having the affair with Jesse. Several members of the family testify that they had exchanged notes for them, and they eventually do have the tavern keepers at the boarding house that they had stayed at testify that they had seen them stay as husband and wife. So they're both in jail awaiting their trial. Remember, the murder happened on May 7th. The trial wasn't until late July. And, of course, on July 4th of 1827, slavery legally ends in New York State. Dinah Jackson is suddenly a free woman. So she is questioned by the police. She explains how she hadn't brought any of this to the attention of the family sooner because she didn't trust Jesse Strang. But she ends up testifying in their trials. Jesse is found guilty within about 20 minutes. Elsie's trial is more sensational because an upper-class woman had an affair with a farmhand and her husband was murdered. This really affects the Van Rensselaers and the Schuylers and all these upper-class families in Albany, but also all over the country. It was in the papers in Boston and in New York City, and it becomes a spectacle. Solomon Van Rensselaer, who is a Van Rensselaer cousin, but also married to Philip P.'s sister, Ariet, they live just down the road at Mount Hope, and they end up taking over Cherry Hill after the murder. He's a military hero. He's a politician. He's very well respected. He goes in and he gives this speech. And essentially what he says is that you couldn't possibly think that Elsie Whipple was the mastermind of this. She was clearly manipulated by this man. So Elsie's acquitted. Jesse Strang ends up being the last public hanging in Albany. There was a natural amphitheater where the plaza is today where all these streams that flowed to the Hudson River met, and it formed this great site for their public hanging. The population in Albany is estimated to have been about 19,000 at the time of the murder, and between 20 and 40,000 people came to the hanging. A Van Rensselaer family member gave in an oral history a memory that she watched carriages driving by and coming into Albany to watch the hanging, and it was just all day long constant carriages coming in. People came as far away as Cooperstown. There were a lot of women in attendance, and apparently the hanging was gruesome enough. It was not a quick, clean hanging, and there were enough women in the audience that Albany decided that that wasn't what they wanted to do anymore, so Jesse was the last hanging. The only acknowledgement of any of it by the Cherry Hill members is Mariah Van Rensselaer's almanac, and it just says, Whipple died, Whipple buried. Elsie Whipple was disgraced, and she eventually left Cherry Hill, and she ends up remarrying in New Jersey. And within just a couple of years, by 1828, her husband had died, and she ended up moving to Onondaga County, but she was dead within five years of the murder. She never had the rights to inheritance. John Whipple and their son, Abraham Whipple, are buried at Albany Rural Cemetery. I can't find Elsie's grave. I'm assuming it's in Onondaga County, but we'll keep looking for that. And it's important to note that the Cherry Hill family never really wanted to acknowledge the murder.
This is Zan Strumfeld of Zan and the Winter Folk. This song is called If I Had Known, and it's about Henrietta Robinson, known as the Veiled Murderess of Troy, New York. Henrietta was known around town as a heavy drinker and even carried a revolver in her dress. She often thought her neighbors were out to get her. On one particular night in the 1850s, she got very drunk at a local bar owned by a couple named the Lanahans who lived above. Mrs. Lanahan wound up kicking Henrietta out for being too rowdy. A few hours later, Henrietta knocks on the Lanahan's door, claiming she is sorry for her rowdiness and wanting to offer beers as an apology. Mr. Lanahan lets her in, but his wife, who had earlier kicked Henrietta out, is suspicious. She watches as her husband drinks one of the beers and then quickly falls to his death from arsenic poisoning. Henrietta is later convicted of murder and wears a veil the entirety of her trial, hence her nickname, the Veiled Murderess. Some say she was responsible for several other Troy deaths, but this is the only one she is convicted of. The song is written from the perspective of Mrs. Lanahan, as if she's telling her story in a police report. Many news articles from the 1850s focus on how to be a good wife, set the table, don't ask questions, let the husband lead, and this song highlights Mrs. Lanahan's suspicions, but also keeping quiet from knowing her place. If I had known I'd have bit my tongue Held back those words That became the barrel of the gun But what's a bar to do? The rowdy gotta go so I told her to leave And Henrietta went home But my sweet husband What a lovely soul He let her in Right But I should have known if I had known See there was talk from other folk downtown Henrietta hit the bottle hard and made her way What's a wife to do? I set the table Laid out the bread, the cheese, the knife A choice that was fatal For my sweet husband
said these beers are on me And I've made them extra sweet Trust me I put some sugar in the yeast My Timothy He laughed, oh what a treat But I just drank tea And stayed quiet in my The Albany Made Podcast is a production of Albany Public Library in Albany, New York. Produced and engineered by Ryan Slowey. You can find more episodes on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, on our YouTube channel at Albany NY Library, or on our website, www.albanypubliclibrary.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.